Well, good morning, church family. It's great to be with you again today, and thank you to Cliff for leading us in our worship of God this morning, and I trust that your heart has been warmed and, and prepared for our time as we come together around God's Word today. And so, won't you take up your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Uh, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. This is the next parable, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And so let's read together uh, in Luke chapter 18, and I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man, referring to the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, this is God's word, and Cliff has already prayed uh, that the Lord would be pleased to add his blessing to both the reading and the preaching of God's word as we come to consider it now. So if you had the opportunity to ask God one question, just one question, the answer to that question would, would make the, the biggest impact to all of your life on this earth and would influence all of your eternity. What would that question be? What would you ask? No, it's not, is this new vaccination going to work? It's not, who will you marry one day? It's not, will I have enough money to retire one day? It's, it's none of those things. I want to propose that the most important question which anyone could ever ask God is this. What will make me acceptable to God? What will make you acceptable to God? You see, the answer to this question will not only profoundly impact your and my life on this earth, but the answer to that question will directly impact all of our eternity. And it's to this question that Jesus turns in this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, this is, once again, a well-known and well-loved parable. I'm sure many of us know this story as, as young children growing up in Christian homes or in Sunday school. I don't know about you, but I still remember those, those A4 coloring in sheets from Sunday school with the, the pompous, religious-looking guy standing uh, in the front of the temple with his hands raised to heaven, and then in the background, that scruffy-looking, tax-collector-ish kind of guy bowing down uh, on the floor. 
And the problem with these well-known parables is that sometimes we think that we know everything about them, and so we don't really take the time to, to read the text to see if we have actually understood what Jesus is saying. And, and this parable is particularly a problem for many people because it has very often been told and interpreted as a parable about prayer. Even one of the commentaries that I read in my preparation seemed to take that line, saying that, that this is a parable uh, that helps us to think carefully about how we should approach God in prayer, what kind of praying God finds acceptable and what kind of praying is not acceptable. But, but that is not what this parable is about, and so I hope that you will engage your mind afresh this morning uh, with this well-known parable, and let's uh, ask God to, to open our eyes to learn what Jesus is really trying to teach us through this story. So, as we've noted multiple times in our series so far, one of the purposes of Jesus in teaching in parables was in order to divide and this certainly happens again in this parable. Jesus once again draws a very clear distinction in this parable between two kinds of people. But in a way which really forces us as the hearer, as the listener, at the end of the story to reflect very personally, very intimately at our own hearts to ask the question, what kind of person am I? Which of these two people in the story represent me, represent you this morning? And so right off the bat, I'm sure that if we were to ask the question right now, if I said to you, identify right now which of the two characters most closely resembles you, I'm sure that most of us would be very quick to make it clear that we are certainly not that proud religious Pharisee guy, absolutely not. But I'm not so sure if we would all be very comfortable identifying with the scruffy, chest-beating tax collector in the background. Isn't there some other choice? Where's the good church-going Baptist in this story? I don't see him, you may say. Well, Jesus doesn't present us with any other option. Only these two. And so let's see what God wants to reveal to us, wants to reveal to our own hearts this morning about which one we are today. So who is this parable addressed to? I think the reason why Sunday school, uh, the, the Sunday school version of this parable is so often uh, wrong is because it skips verse 9. Usually the Sunday school teachers so quick to jump to the parable that they forget to read verse 9, which tells us up front what this parable is about, why Jesus is telling this story. Verse 9 says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So right from the start, we are given a very clear indication that this parable which Jesus is about to tell is not about two different approaches to prayer, but instead is addressed specifically to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and then who treated others with contempt. And so the purpose of Jesus' parable is to look at this question that we mentioned at the beginning – what makes a person right before God? What makes you acceptable to God? 
And Jesus is speaking specifically here in this parable to those who trust in their own righteousness, their own efforts, their own good works to make them acceptable. But before we we look at the parable, we must notice that Jesus mentions in passing that a byproduct of the person who trusts in themselves to be righteous is that they will treat others with contempt. One commentator says that those who think that they are good enough for God will most definitely think that they are better than everyone else. How true is that? This is human nature, is it not? That we measure ourselves so easily against other people. We measure ourselves against them in, in intellect, in, in the way we look, in finances, in athleticism, in personality, in accomplishments. And as soon as we think that we are better than others in some area, the natural human attitude is to look down on others with contempt. We are not immune to this within the context of the church. On the contrary, Jesus himself here is actually zooming in on this worst kind of sinful pride and contempt, which is the religious kind, the kind which fills many churches, fills many religions of this world where people think that through their religious duties, through their good works, through their religious observances, they are acceptable to God, and as a result then they look down on others who they consider to be worse than them, especially those who don't measure up to the standards of righteousness and religious practices which they believe they have obtained. So that then is the introduction to this parable. But let's move on then to consider the parable itself. And in the first place, Jesus tells us about two very different men in verse 10. We've seen in some of the previous parables, Jesus' masterful use of stories to to bring out a striking contrast between two characters in order to, to drive home the point of the dramatic, undeniable difference that exists between Christians and unbelievers. We've already seen that, and we do so again here, that Jesus is not trying in any way to blur the lines between the the atheist and the agnostic and the irreligious and the nominal Christian and then the born-again, radically saved, spirit-filled Christian, trying to somehow create a a spectrum of belief and and giving you the option to kind of pin your colors uh, on the mast at whatever point you feel suits you best. No, in Jesus' mind, which is the mind of God himself, these matters of spiritual truth are very clear, very simple, black and white, believer or unbeliever. And so he uses these very stark contrasts uh, of these characters in the stories to make that point clear. And the contrast between these two men could not be more clear. And we are likely to miss some of this because we are not always familiar with what Jesus' hearers would have clearly understood in their original context. Now, part of the problem that we have as we come to a parable like this is that we've read the New Testament. We've seen that in a lot of instances in the Gospels, as Jesus encounters the Pharisees, 
Nine out of ten times, he called them hypocrites, brood of vipers, belonging to their father, the devil. And, and outwardly, they observed the things of God. Outwardly, uh, they did all the right things in terms of the, the law of God. Uh, so appeared, so it appeared. And yet inwardly, they were seeking their own glory. Inwardly, uh, they were striving after their own heart's desires, greed and power and pride. And so Jesus even at one point calls them whitewashed tombs. And so we will come to a parable like this and we immediately connect a very negative connotation to the Pharisees. And we immediately assume that we are not like the Pharisees. And that is where we start to go wrong in this parable. In actual fact, thinking that we are better than these hypocritical, proud Pharisees actually makes it very clear that we are indeed the Pharisees, ourselves in this story. But let's take ourselves back to Jesus' original hearers. This would not have been the case for them at all. On the contrary, the the Jews of Jesus' day, for them to, to be a Pharisee was the pinnacle of the Jewish religion. Only the most knowledgeable scholars of the Old Testament could become Pharisees. Only the most self-disciplined, hard-working, committed, loyal followers of the Jewish faith could reach this highly esteemed religious status. These guys truly were the religious elite and, and they had the respect and the honor of any person who remotely identified themselves as Jews. And so the Pharisee in the story actually represents the good guy. He's the guy who everyone would have looked up to in society as the example of good works and moral behavior and right living. Today we could think perhaps of professors of theology at the finest uh, evangelical universities or theological seminaries or perhaps the most prominent of, of Christian pastors or authors, those who are esteemed in our Christian community as being the most godly, the most religious, the most knowledgeable and wise of all Christians. So that's the first man, the Pharisee. The other man, however, was at the other end, the opposite end of the spectrum. He was the tax collector. Now, why was this chap at the bottom of the social food chain? Well, because the history here is that the Jews had been captured, been conquered by the Romans. And although Rome did allow a fair amount of autonomy to the Jews to function uh, independently, they were nevertheless under Roman rule and authority. And so the Roman Empire exacted taxes from the Jews in order to fund the empire. Now, the way that the Romans operated was very, very clever. They would find locals in the people groups that they had conquered who would be prepared to shift their allegiance or shift their loyalties to Rome, people whose allegiance could be bought and who would then collect the taxes on behalf of the Romans. And the model of financial remuneration was a kind of a commission structure which would allow the the tax collector to demand more than Rome required, and then the tax collector would keep the difference for themselves. So these tax collectors were seen by the Jewish people as backstabbing traitors of the Jewish nation. 
people who made a living by stealing money from their own people in order to pay the oppressive Roman Empire and then feather their own nests in the process. And so these are the two very different, very contrasting characters that Jesus presents to us today. One, very respectful, uh, upright, moral, and religious. The other, despised, crooked, dishonest, and irreligious. The one you would certainly expect to find in church on a Sunday, the other not. The one you would expect to find praying the other not. So that then is, is the, the first point, the, the two very different men. But now in the second place, I want us to see two very different approaches to God in verses 11 to 13. And this really is the meat of the parable where Jesus elaborates on how these two very different men approach God. Not so much in terms of their style of prayer or the words that they use, but in terms of the attitude of their hearts as they come to God. So let's start with the Pharisee, the the upright religious man, the, the good guy. Let's start there. And firstly, we see in verse 11 that he prayed to himself. And this actually comes out in the footnote of the ESV, uh, but it's clear from the way that he prayed that he was really talking to God about himself. The Christian Standard Bible says the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. One commentator makes the comment that much of what goes on in Christian prayer today is simply an individual talking to himself about himself. And that seems to be exactly the case here with this Pharisee. We also see in his approach to prayer. Yes, it was common practice to stand in prayer. That's not really the issue here. But the point Jesus is making is that he went and he stood by himself, most likely at the front of the temple, before the altar, in front of the the most holy place, with confidence that he was able to, to come near before the presence of God on the basis of his own righteousness. He didn't need any help. His confidence before God was not based on the the bringing of a sacrifice or an offering which he had brought to offer up to God. He did not come through the mediating work of a priest on his behalf. He didn't think he needed those things. And so he came and and he stood in the presence of God on his own terms. We see this right from the very beginning of his prayer. God, I thank you that I am. See, he, he... he starts by addressing God, that's, that's okay, and he gives thanks to God, but then he immediately goes very wrong because the focus of his prayer is actually not on God at all. It's not on thanking God and praising God for who he is and, and what God has done for him. No, the focus of his prayer is on himself, on who he is and what he has done and not done. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Oh, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. So firstly, he lists to God the things that he has not done. 
And surely it's not a bad thing uh, that this Pharisee was an upright and moral man. He, surely it's, it's something to be grateful for, that he was not an extortioner or an adulterer or an unjust man. And, and yes, those are, of course, good things, things that God desires from all people. But the issue again and again in this parable is not his praying or his actions. It's what makes a man acceptable before God. And so this religious man comes to God in prayer with misplaced confidence because he thought that his goodness as a person is what makes him acceptable to God. And notice that his measure of what he believed made him acceptable to God was not to compare himself to God and and God's righteous standards revealed in the law. It was not to compare himself... uh, to men like Moses or Isaiah, what does he do? No, he compares himself to those who are outwardly sinful, those who are morally inferior to himself in terms of their actions. And we all know something of this, don't we? This, this temptation. It's not hard for us to find someone who is worse than us in various ways, someone who is more openly sinful, someone who is less self-controlled, someone who is more hot-tempered, someone who is a worse driver. It's easy to, to point the fingers at the failings of others and then to feel good about ourselves when we compare ourselves to other people. We find this happening In the church and outside the church. In the church, people justify themselves by believing that God will accept them in heaven one day because they are so much better than those who are outside the church. People at the office or the neighbor next door or those people right now while you're sitting at home watching TV, it's those people who've gone shopping in the mall. I'm so much better than them, am I not? But the same happens outside the church where unbelievers are quick to say things like, you know, those Christians, they're a bunch of hypocrites. They say one thing, but they do another. I'm so glad I'm not like them. I'm a straight shooter. What you see is what you get with me. See what both groups are doing? Both groups are finding ways to feel superior to the other. Both groups are basing their goodness, their righteousness on their own performance. So the religious type are, are happy to, to not be drunkards or sexually immoral or foul-mouthed, but in their thinking they puff themselves up in pride and they speak with contempt on other people. The irreligious type, those out there are not worried perhaps about the fact that they verbally abuse their wives or swear like a trooper or gossip and lie because they pride themselves in their transparency or their hard work or whatever else it may be which makes them feel better about themselves. The bottom line is that all people without Christ are the same, religious and irreligious. Each person is seeking to to be accepted before God based on certain things in his or her life which, which they believe will make them good enough for God based on the fact that They are not as bad as somebody else. And we see that the Pharisee takes this even further, not just priding himself in the things that he has not done, but he goes on in verse 12 to pride himself in the things that he has done. He says, I fast twice a week. 
and I give a tenth of all that I get to the church, Nochal. Now, what Jesus is trying to convey here is the other side of this coin of, of works righteousness. Not just focusing on the bad things which we don't do, but focusing on the good things which we do do. You see, the Old Testament required a Jew to only fast once a year. And so this Pharisee is priding himself in going above and beyond or beyond the call of duty. He fasts twice a week. That's 104 times as many as God required. What an amazing chap he must be. And the Old Testament only required that a Jew tithe 10% of his income, 10% of, of what he earned through his labors. But this guy gave a tenth of everything he got. So if you gave him a chocolate cake for his birthday, you could be sure that that coming Sabbath, one slice out of ten would have got itself into the offering bag in the temple. Surely God would be pleased with that. Well, the point Jesus is trying to make here is this. The Pharisee approached God on the basis of who he thought he was, his inherent self-worth, his inherent value and goodness which he believed was acceptable to God because he did not do certain bad things and he did do certain good things above and beyond that which God required. This man, as Jesus clearly explained in verse 9, trusted in himself that he was righteous. Now, let's look at how Jesus contrasts this approach with the entirely different approach, the approach of this wicked and despised tax collector. He's the bad guy in our story. Verse 13, but the tax collector, with, with all that that encompasses, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If the overriding approach of the Pharisee was one of self-confidence, we find the tax collector was one of, of self-abasement, one of humility and brokenness before God. I think in the day and age in which we live, where self-esteem and, and self-image and self-confidence has become the, the much-acclaimed be-all and end-all solution to all of our human problems, we would probably have gone to the tax collector and say, hey man, get up off the ground. Go and buy yourself a nice new outfit. Post a couple selfies at the coffee shop with a double-thick chocolate milkshake in front of you. Go and visit your, your personal therapist or life coach on the way home. And, and then look inside of yourself and, and be strong, for a hero lies in you. But what we see about this man what we see in Scripture is the truth about every single person who has come to see themselves as God sees them. Time and time again in Scripture, when people come into contact with the holiness or the presence of God, they were struck to the core regarding their own disgusting sinfulness. And they fell on their faces before God as Isaiah did, crying out, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. This was 
the cry of the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Greek here is actually more emphatic. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm not just any sinner. I'm not just a little bit of a sinner. My entire identity before you, God, is one of a sinner. I am the sinner, the worst of sinners. Notice a few other things about this man's approach to God. He stood far off. He did not consider himself worthy to approach the front of the temple where the altar was and where the Holy of Holies was, where God dwelt symbolically. No, he knew that he needed to come before God, but he also knew that he needed to keep his distance from a holy God. We see this in his posture, that he would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest. Here is a man who is overcome by his own unworthiness before the presence of God. He's grieved to the core that he could be so sinful and and yet still be alive, so aware that he was fully deserving of the wrath and the punishment of God against him for his sinfulness. Notice that he does not compare himself to anyone. He does not even mention his relationship to anyone else. He simply comes and falls before God and cries out for mercy. Two totally different men with two totally different approaches to God. But in the final place, and I want us to see two very different responses from God. Verse 14. Now again, because of the familiarity that we have with some of the well-known parables, we often miss out on what was meant to be a shocking punchline or a, a sting in the tail. Remember that through these parables, Jesus is seeking to convey spiritual truth, spiritual truth which was previously hidden, but now which has been revealed as it has been laid alongside this earthly story. And the truth which this parable is meant to reveal would have been totally shocking to Jesus' original hearers. And I think we need to be freshly shocked in our modern context today. And here it is in verse 14. Jesus said, I tell you, this man, this sinful, broken, humbled, low self-esteem tax collector, this man went home justified, accepted by God. And the other man, the super-religious, moral, upright Pharisee, he was rejected by God. This would have come as a total surprise to everyone listening, both to the religious and the irreligious person alike. Because what Jesus reveals here is that acceptance before God is not based on who we are. It's not based on what we do or don't do. It's not based on our nationality or race or occupation or upbringing or lack thereof. It is not based on our past life choices or our current performance. This message cannot be more clearly and more vividly conveyed than by Jesus saying that the tax collector went home justified, fully accepted by God, and the Pharisee went home rejected 
by God. Justification. This is the heart of our question this morning. What makes me acceptable to God? We spent time in Romans last year or two years ago studying this doctrine of justification in some detail. But let me remind you again what Martin Luther said. Justification is the chief article from which all our theology flows. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for even one hour. John Calvin called justification the main hinge on which all of Christianity turns. And Luther again said that justification is the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler, the judge over all kinds of doctrine. Justification means that God declares us to be righteous, declares us to be just. We are declared by God to be without guilt, and not only without guilt, but perfectly acceptable to Him. And so God's answer to our main question this morning, what makes me acceptable to God? His answer is justification. The only way you or I can be acceptable to God is if we are justified, if we are declared by God to be righteous. But that leads on to an even greater question this morning. How is it possible that I can be justified? What do I need to do to go home justified this morning, like the tax collector, and not go home rejected by God as the Pharisee was? What is it that will make this miserable sinner acceptable to God? What do I need to do to be declared righteous? I mean, after all, if, if all the human righteousness of that Pharisee was not good enough for God, then Jesus is making the point that no one else can ever hope to be accepted before God on the basis of their own righteousness. Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us that every one of us is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. They don't count a single iota to contribute towards our acceptance before God. So what then is the answer to the problem of my sin? The answer is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now you may say, hang on Clinton, that's cheating. The cross of Jesus is not mentioned in this parable All I see is two guys praying. One gets accepted by God. The other's rejected. One's justified. The other's not. Where's the cross of Jesus in all of this? Well, come with me. Look a little bit closer with me. Let's turn to verse 13. Let's look at the prayer of the tax collector. What does he pray? He prays, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now that word there, be merciful, in the Greek is the key to justification. It's the key to this being accepted by God that he enjoyed. The word be merciful comes from the root word meaning propitiation. He literally prays, God, be propitiated towards me, the sinner. 
Now, propitiation is not a word that, that we use much today, and many Bibles have unfortunately dropped it in, in the English, but it means to have the wrath of God turned away so that the blessing of God can flow. As God looks at us, He is consumed with wrath towards us. Blessing can never flow towards a sinner. And so what has to happen is the wrath of God has to be turned away. It has to be propitiated so that the blessing of God can flow. Paul explains this link in, uh, between justification and propitiation in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. How does that happen? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, as an atoning sacrifice, as a a wrath-appeasing sacrifice to be received by faith. And So here in Luke 18, we see Jesus laying this foundation of the doctrine of justification, which Paul would later on expound in Romans and Galatians finds its basis in the word propitiation. Now, Jesus knew that he was going to die soon. He knew that he would become the propitiating sacrifice for our sins. Through his death on the cross, he would turn the wrath of God away from sinners onto himself so that the blessing of God could then flow to sinners. Surely, The tax collector would not have understood this, would not have known this. Surely he did not understand about Jesus' death on the cross, which had not even happened yet. Well, here we see how wonderfully the Old Testament points us forward to the culmination of Jesus' death on the cross. Because this word, be merciful, be propitiated, also is the same word used in the Bible to speak of the mercy seat. Now, what is the mercy seat? Well, inside the temple, the very center of the holy place, we have the the most holy place, or the holy of holies, which contained a wooden box called the Ark of the Covenant. This was a box, you'll remember from our studies in 1 Samuel, was, was overlaid in gold. It contained the Ten Commandments. And then on top of the Ark... There was a golden lid or a golden covering called the mercy seat with two golden cherubim, two golden angelic beings on either side. And and the space between the cherubim above the mercy seat was the place where the presence of God dwelt symbolically. Now, what does the mercy seat have to do then with propitiation? Well, it's this. It's this which even... The tax collector, because he was Jewish, he would have known and understood. You see, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the most holy place with the blood of an animal which had been sacrificed only a few moments earlier. An innocent animal, an animal without spot or blemish, a perfect specimen that had never done anything wrong. It was killed and its blood was then taken by the priest, the high priest, into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. And it was sprinkled onto the mercy seat. 
And through this ritual, God then declared himself to be propitiated. His wrath and his anger against the sinfulness of the people of Israel and their sins was turned away. Now in the light of that, this tax collector who saw himself as the chief of sinners, he comes before this holy God of the Old Testament and he bows his head and he, and he beats his chest and all he knows what to cry out is this, God, be mercy seated towards me. Be propitiated towards me. God, accept the blood of the sacrifice. Turn your wrath away from me and let your blessing, let your forgiveness, let it flow to me. For I'm a sinner and I'm deserved to be condemned by you. But I plead with you for mercy on the basis of the blood of a substitute. There, my friends, is the cross. For we are told in the book of Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away the guilt and the sin of men. But it was simply a picture. It was given to us, a picture repeated year after year as a pointer forward to remind us that we need something more to take away God's wrath against sinners. So Jesus comes as the perfect Lamb of God without spot or blemish, perfectly righteous. And He goes to the cross and He is sacrificed in our place and His blood which is shed propitiates the wrath of God, purchases our justification. It's only at the cross that God is propitiated. His wrath is fully and finally satisfied and His blessings then flow to all who come to Him for mercy. And so that tax collector, he went home justified. He went home declared righteous, fully accepted before God, not because of his prayer, not because of anything he had or hadn't done in his life, but he was accepted before God because he fell before the mercy seat. He looked to God to provide him with a substitute, a sacrifice for sins, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who was telling the story. So my question to you is this. Have you come to the mercy seat of God as this tax collector did? I'm not asking if you come to church or if you've been baptized. I'm not asking if you've done this good thing or not done that bad thing. I'm asking if you've come before the holy God of the Bible with nothing in your hands except a broken and a contrite heart, a heart which cries out, Woe is me, for I have sinned. A heart which can say nothing else, nothing to try and justify, defend, but a heart which says, God, be merciful to me. Be mercy seated towards me. Be propitiated towards me on the basis of Jesus' blood and his righteousness, for I am the sinner. If you've not yet done that, then it doesn't matter how good you think you are, nor how much better you think you may be than others, you will still go home today, or you are already home, but you'll stay home today, still bearing all your guilt. 
And with that, you will remain firmly with the wrath of God set upon you. But if you have, if you have fallen down before the cross, if you've pleaded to God for mercy, then you can know today that you are justified. Knowing with full confidence that you are acceptable to God, you are fully loved, you are fully welcomed into His presence because you have trusted in the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So I plead with you before God this morning to examine which of the two men you are in this parable. To let the light of God's word shine into your heart. Expose all the lies, all the corruption, all the filth, all the greed. All that self-righteous pride and arrogance. All the shame and the guilt. Let it be exposed. And then fall on your knees before God and cry to God for mercy and forgiveness. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, how we marvel again at the truths, the simple truths of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Oh Lord God, forgive us all today for having an element of the, the Pharisee in us, so quick to justify our actions, so quick to defend ourselves, so quick to handpick the parts of Scripture where we think we're doing well and ignore the parts where we know we are failing in order to, to make ourselves look acceptable to you. Oh Lord God, forgive us, we pray. Reveal to us if we have never perhaps had the heart of the tax collector, that heart which recognizes our filth and guilt and shame before you, a heart which cries out, O oh God, be mercy seated towards us. So Lord, I pray that each one of us today would, would get to that place where we do not hesitate for a moment to say, I am that tax collector. And by the grace of God, I have been justified. I have been declared righteous. And as Zacchaeus did, I will live my life seeking to honor him and to glorify him by making good, making restoration to all those that I've sinned against in order that the light of Christ may be seen in me. Oh Lord God, may you touch us afresh today through the preaching of your word May your Holy Spirit be at work to convict, to grant the gift of faith and repentance, and to draw us into that loving fellowship and acceptance with God himself for all eternity. This is only a work you can do, Lord, and we pray that you would do it in every single one of us who is listening to this service today, that you might be glorified, that you, your kingdom might be built on this earth and continue to grow. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn today is an old hymn written by that converted slave trader, John Newton, a man who certainly in his pagan 
irreligious days, rejected God, defied God, and yet came to that place where he understood the prayer of this tax collector, Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. In 1748, at the age of 23, John Newton was on one of his slave trading trips to West Africa when he was brought close to death through fever. And during this time, he, he made his decisive commitment for Christ. One biographer says he simply cast himself on the mercy of God in Christ. This hymn of John Newton called Approach My Soul, The Mercy Seat, it echoes the heart of our tax collector. And, and even if the tune is not familiar, please focus on the words as your own prayer as you come before the mercy seat of God today. The version of this hymn that we're going to sing was recorded last year by the congregation of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. This is the church where Charles Spurgeon preached the gospel faithfully for 38 years and where God's word continues to be proclaimed today. And I pray that this will be a fitting conclusion to our time around the Word of God today. May the Lord bless you as we just close the service in this hymn and then as we seek to go out and to live for Him in the week ahead. Amen. Amen.